6 o'clock on the dot. And welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, November 2nd. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. In tonight's news, Democratic lawmakers announce a bill package to improve living conditions in state and county jails. Several Madison events highlight mending and fiber arts. Moses community organizer James Morgan shares more perspective on the justice system. And in the second half, a peer support specialist talks re-entry after serving time. Experts share advice on re-roofing your home. And UW-Madison is hosting a textile exhibition for just a few more weeks. This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Numerous restrictions on abortion would be lifted under a package of bills Democrat introduced this week in the state assembly, but the package is unlikely to progress far in the Republican-dominated legislature. Under the proposed Reproductive Freedom Act, a ban on abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy would be lifted. That rule was in effect before the U.S. Supreme Court overturned precedent that said a woman had a constitutional right to an abortion. Abortion services in Wisconsin were suspended after the Supreme Court ruling, but they resumed after a Dane County judge wrote that the 1849 law prohibited feticide rather than abortion. Another proposal in the Democrats' measure would enable doctors to prescribe abortion-inducing drugs without giving the patient a physical exam and being present when the drug is taken. Also, the package would seek to broaden access to accurate information about abortion and other options, the Wisconsin Examiner reports. The largest electric utility in Wisconsin plans to phase out coal as fuel for generating power by 2032, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. WEC Energy Group, the parent company for We Energies and Wisconsin Public Service, announced during an earnings report this week that it has moved up its end date for use of coal by three years. The utility said it would increase spending on renewable energy by $1.4 billion between 2024 and 2028. That will bring the company close to its goal of eliminating 80% of its carbon dioxide emissions by 2030, according to the State Journal. All that innovation costs money, of course, and the State Public Service Commission is poised to decide how much more the state's electric companies can charge customers to keep the lights on. It's considering petitions for rate increases from five utilities across the state and is expected to act Friday on the request from Madison Gas and Electric. MG&E has proposed to raise rates 9.5% for residential customers and 8.8% for small business owners over the course of the next two years, according to the Wisconsin Examiner. Victims of sexual abuse as children will have the time they could sue their abusers extended to age 45 under bipartisan legislation moving through the state capitol. Current law already makes an abuser liable for criminal charges until the victim is 45. The proposed change to the civil code would bring it up to, to that standard, the Capital Times reports. The two bills moving through the Senate and Assembly also change the description of offenses from sexual assault to sexual conduct in any sexual contact by, quote, an adult or an adult member of the clergy. 
legislation that would have closed the loophole, allowing clergy to avoid reporting abuse revealed in private communications stalled in the Capitol in 2019. That provision is not part of the current Senate bill, which received a committee hearing on Wednesday. A widely used medical device that measures oxygen in the bloodstream tends to give inaccurate readings for people of color. 25 state attorneys general want better guidance on that fact for medical providers. Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call has joined a coalition directing the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to provide clear warning labels on pulse oximeters, stating that they can give inaccurate readings on patients with melanated or darker skin. The group submitted a letter this week to the FDA on the one-year anniversary of the agency's first discussion on the device's measurement disparities on people of color. Pulse oximeters provide the only non-intrusive means to measure oxygen saturation in the body. The measurements were widely used during the COVID-19 pandemic to determine the seriousness of a patient's illness. An inaccurate reading could cause delays in treatment and hospital admissions, the letter said. The Madison Police Department has settled a lawsuit brought by a local journalist after the department told him he'd need to wait over a year to receive reports related to an internal investigation. Under Wisconsin Sunshine Law, those records are publicly available and can be requested by almost anyone. Government entities are supposed to fulfill open records requests as soon as practical and without delay. And legal guidance from the state suggests a maximum wait time of 10 business days for most requests. Prominent journalist Bill Leaders, formerly of the Progressive Magazine and Isthmus Newspaper, sued the MPD in September for failing to do just that. Instead, Leaders was told he'd need to wait about 14 months to get his request filled. Now, after legal help from the Wisconsin Transparency Project, the department has produced the records. The MPD also agreed to pay $3,000 in court costs, along with the statutory damages of $200. And the department has added two new positions to help the police department's backlog of requests. Leaders isn't the only local journalist to be given an unreasonable wait time for public records availability. What's wart record for wait time for records from the MPD? We counted. It took 360 days for records to be filled, also in a case related to an internal investigation. A new report finds that the number of people in the average Wisconsin household has shrunk over the past 50 years. While in 1970, the average household size hovered at around 3.22, by 2020, that number had declined to 2.36. Now that's more than a quarter drop in the last half century, reports the Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonprofit, non or nonpartisan nonprofit think tank. That shrinkage could be caused by a confluence of factors, including longer average lifespan and smaller families with fewer children. One implication of the trend: a mismatch with the current housing stock. And whereas the average Wisconsin house was built in 1974 at a time when the average household was larger and there were fewer single-person households, the demand now for smaller housing units is greater. And that could be a factor in Madison's struggle for affordable rental housing. And now on to today's top stories. Democratic lawmakers have announced a package of bills to improve conditions for people incarcerated in Wisconsin's jails and prisons. 
The 17 proposals seek to improve conditions for both people who are locked up and for their families. The bills are wide-ranging, from better labor rights to personal hygiene, access to visitors and programming, communications and oversight, and transparency. WRT News producer Faye Parks was at the press conference announcing the bills this morning and has this report. This morning, Democratic legislators held a press conference announcing a package of bills to improve the conditions of confinement at state prisons and county jails. The package includes 15 individual bills, along with two constitutional amendments, and the proposals range from increasing the minimum wage for incarcerated folks to increasing access to hygiene products to bettering transparency of jails and prisons. Members of the public impacted by current incarceration policies spoke at today's press conference. Advocacy groups, including Wisdom, Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing, or EXPO, and the ACLU of Wisconsin were also present. The bill package comes as the lockdown at Waupun Correctional Institution reaches its seventh month. Since the New York Times published an investigative report on that lockdown, corrections facilities across the state have been getting national attention. John McRae Jones is a policy analyst at ACLU of Wisconsin. The New York Times tells the stories of incarcerated people having food trays with bird droppings on them, people having to tear off their own clothes as toilet paper, and ice bags are handed out to keep people cool to address the rising heat of climate change. 1,000 people incarcerated at Waupun Correctional Institution have been forced to endure solitary confinement-like conditions for months, not because of behavior, but because of staffing shortages. McCray Jones also points out that these bills are important because of Wisconsin's disparities in incarceration. Wisconsin has the highest rate of black incarceration in the nation. One out of every 36 black people in Wisconsin are in cages. That comes from the Sentencing Project's 2021 study. Representative Darren Madison, a Democrat from Milwaukee, says that lawmakers collaborated with formerly incarcerated individuals, correctional officers, the State Department of Corrections, and community organizations to author the proposed legislation. I always say that those who are closest to the issues are closest to the solutions. Representative Madison says that feedback turns their attention to two major issues. The purpose of this bill package is to ensure that we have humane conditions for the people who are currently incarcerated, along with increasing oversight and transparency of our jails and prisons. Today, Representative Madison spotlighted what he considers to be a major flaw in Wisconsin's Constitution. The state does not currently have a total ban on slavery. According to a 2022 report from the NAACP, Wisconsin is one of 19 states in the nation that explicitly permits involuntary servitude for the punishment of a crime. Representative Madison says the proposed total ban modeled after ones already in place in Colorado, Rhode Island, Nebraska, Alabama, Tennessee, Vermont, Oregon, and Utah is long overdue. This constitutional amendment is crucial to the true liberation of communities of color and every single person in Wisconsin who still could legally face slavery today, as well as every person who is currently incarcerated. Most of the bills included in the package are looking to improve Wisconsin inmates' living conditions. One would codify regular access to hygiene products, including culturally sensitive ones, with a monthly stipend for inmates to purchase them. Others would reduce the isolation that many inmates experience, requiring access to two in-person visits a week 
weekly recreational opportunities, and a stipend for media access. To improve inmates' quality of life, lawmakers are also proposing that they get more time outdoors and that correctional facilities are equipped with better climate control. Lawmakers are also focusing on better transparency. One bill would require all state and county facilities to provide all inmates access to a written document with administrative rules and complaint processes. For loved ones on the outside, lawmakers are proposing two publicly available dashboards to access information on lockdowns, solitary confinement, and formal complaints. Carrie Hurdy's daughter, Sylvia Therian, died in the Milwaukee County Jail last year, just four days after her 20th birthday. Hurdy says Sylvia was never sentenced, and she still does not know the charges brought against her daughter. Hurdy also says she never received any of her daughter's mental health information, though Sylvia filled out documents giving her consent. Hurdy is in support of the second proposed constitutional amendment, which would give counties the authority to oversee jails. With increased oversight and more transparency, she says, Wisconsin jails would have to improve inmates' living conditions. We can allow the community and our county supervisors and our legislators to go into these jails and into these prisons with all cells being cleaned. When they show you a clean cell, it shows you a different picture. When you're not able to talk to the inmates who are in there, it shows you a different picture. Representative Ryan Clancy, a Democrat from Milwaukee, says that they've reached out to a number of Republican state lawmakers for co-sponsorship, but none have responded favorably so far. We'll have more on the criminal justice system later in the show, with the second part of yesterday's interview with James Morgan, the community organizer for Moses. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. A group of local sewists are on a mission to repair the social fabric of our society, one jacket at a time. Volunteers with The Mending Project meet at Madison Libraries and repair textiles for anyone in need. Today, The Mending Project was the first stop on a tour of initiatives and art galleries celebrating how mending clothes can contribute to a better society. Reporter Sarah Gabler has the story. Several events today highlight the work of Wisconsinites dedicated to the art of mending. Volunteers with The Mending Project shared their experiences repairing textiles for community members at Madison Public Library's Central Branch. The discussion was followed by two gallery talks, one at the Watrous Gallery at the Overture Center and another at the Lynn Mecklenburg Textile Gallery on the UW-Madison campus. The exhibit at the Watrous Gallery, called Mend, The Work of Repair, showcases several Wisconsin artists, including Heidi Parks's hand-sewn quilts, Ciara Berry's collection of household objects that critique American housing systems, Glenn Williams' series of assisted devices, and other works by Sylvie Rosenthal and Jamie Harvey Wilms. Jody Klaus, the director of the Watrous Gallery, says that mending is a powerful metaphor for relationship building, the body, and clothing. And I'm really interested in showcasing Wisconsin artists who maybe haven't been seen as often in our community. And there were a number of people who were doing work that seemed to tie together different approaches to mending. Mending relationships, mending social problems. Um, there's a, an artist who's making sculpture about prosthetic devices, you know, sort of trying to mend in a sense of disability. Volunteers with the Mending Project mend items for people that aren't able to mend or replace those items themselves. 
These volunteers say they have skills and time to share, and that makes the work easy. They set up their sewing machines every week and brainstorm with clients on fabric and thread choices, as volunteer Diane Kakari says. And we meant for everyone, so there's no stigma whatsoever. All kinds of people come in, all ages of people come in. The initiative started at the Central Library and expanded to Hawthorne Library last year when organizers noticed they could serve even more folks experiencing homelessness near that location. Pat Goleman describes some of the mundane and surprising mending projects she has worked on over the years. We've done cases for CPAC machines that people have to carry around with them when they're living on the streets and they're still trying to maintain their health. Lots of dog leashes. And probably the most unusual thing was mending a boxing glove. Bird Ross, co-organizer of the mending project, confirms that this work is a small but mighty force of community care. Sewing is always something that I have loved to do. It's brainstorming and problem solving. And what I love about it is the community that it um, brings together and the idea that people really love to mend things for other people. It brings them joy and it brings fixed clothing or other textile items back to life. Mending is also a rejection of consumerist values, fast fashion, and planned obsolescence, as Jody Klaus attests. These really are systemic issues that an ethic of mending and repair could really make a big dent. You can find the Mending Project at the Madison Public Library Central Branch on Thursdays from 10 to 12, and at the Hawthorne Branch every other Wednesday from noon until 2 p.m. Mend, the work of repair, shows at the Watrous Gallery through Sunday, November 5th. Feature contributor Jennifer Fields will have even more on textile arts later in the show. For WORT News, I'm Sarah Gabler. Yesterday, we brought you the first part of our interview with James Morgan, the community organizer at Moses, a nonpartisan grassroots organization. He discussed the ongoing lockdown at Waupon Correctional Institute and the class action lawsuit several inmates have filed against the Department of Corrections leadership. Today, WRT news producer Faye Parks has Morgan's perspective on the criminal justice system as a whole and his suggestions for change. Can you tell me a little bit more about Moses, the kind of work that your organization does? Yes, well, you know, I mean, Moses is a multi-faith organization. We have approximately 22 different faith-based congregations under our umbrella, and we focus on a lot of issues regarding dismantling the systems of incarceration. That means that, you know, we have a, what we call the JSR, I task force as a justice system reform initiative. We have a committee that focuses on conditions of confinement. We have a post-release. And so a lot of it centers around engaging and seeking to have legislative changes that will reflect some parity when it comes to the criminal justice system and other issues. So you've touched on some of the solutions that Moses has proposed. Do you want to walk us through some of those, perhaps addressing reentering society, what kind of support you would want to provide, and the systemic changes that you're looking for? You know, we understand that the narratives that exist about prisons and people in prisons, we tend to close our eyes or turn our heads. And, you know, that's something that I think, you know, our culture, our society, our, our, our state, our nation needs to revisit because long term, when we're going to have individuals put in cages 
and being treated inhumanely, what will we expect when they return? So we need to have some serious conversations and, you know, some action steps to see what we mean when we say punishment, not just here in Wisconsin, but in this country. Systemic changes, one of them, I guess at the top of the list, is to be looking at how we sentence, you know, excessively long sentences, excessively long periods of time on parole that generally places individuals in a space where they're at risk of, you know, revocations, being sent back to prison over and over again, not because they've committed a new crime, but for, you know, rule violations. Some of those rule violations may raise to the standard where a period, maybe a short period of time of reincarceration is warranted. But however, when that extends into year upon year upon year, 20, 30, 40 years of supervision, it's it's exceeding the purpose of, of punishment. Then we look at commutations. You know, the governor has the power and the authority to commute some sentences. The elderly who are incarcerated, who there's no longer a need for them to just be sitting there vegetating until the point of death, who could be released safely. And that's what we're talking about, people who could be released safely to the community. Engaging with reentry providers who have proven successful in assisting individuals to come back to the community in a safe way and, you know, become gainfully employed, find housing, find education, have, you know, access to adequate medical care. So there are a number of things that we could be looking at that are uh, really cost-effective, more so than just continuing the never-ending punishment stories that we, we constantly hear about and see and experience. So there are a number of things that can be done. There are a number of things and a number of organizations and individuals who would be more than willing to assist with these changes, whether that's establishing a board, reinstituting a parole board in the state of Wisconsin. Individuals aren't aware of the fact that there literally has not been a parole board in the state of Wisconsin since the mid-80s. And when it comes to those decisions of paroling individuals, I would also suggest that, you know, because, you know, the uh, parole commissioners who are appointed by the governor, Mr. Tate more recently, who was doing the job that he was hired to do because of politics, had to resign from that position. So, you know, there's there's not a one-size-fits-all solution to this. But we do believe that it's going to take a collaboration. It's going to take some actual thinking and putting these processes in. And it's going to take some courage for us to say, you know, let us, you know, approach these situations and circumstances with a logical mind as opposed to constantly being in fear of or allowing the politicians to use that fear to create this system that's dehumanizing and, and non-productive for all of us, for, for all of us here in the state of Wisconsin. So I would like for the listeners to pay attention, pay attention. I know that there's a lot going on in our culture. Indeed, there's a lot going on in our world. We're looking at helping set a foundation for a, a space where we can hold accountable individuals who violate the social contract. But we also want to look at how we can, in some ways, build a roadmap, so to speak, where when those individuals are ready to return to society, that they can do those things in a healthy way and that we open up the doors for what we call that second chance.
for individuals to become a part of the human family again. You know, we get we get a lot of messages. We get a lot of messages through our media. We get a lot of messages, whether it's on YouTube or these other places, about crime and criminality and also who that is, who that looks like, okay? And it impacts us, okay? It impacts us emotionally. It impacts us mentally. It impacts us subconsciously so that we're in constant fear of one another as people. Let us begin to have those conversations and address the realities of our situations and circumstances so that at the end of the day, we all have healthy communities, that we have, you know, what we've been calling for, safe spaces. And it's going to take all of us to engage in these processes. And this can be a start to really look at how do we shift these narratives and then the realities that exist. That was James Morgan of Moses, a Madison-based criminal justice advocacy group. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. In this week's edition of Out of the Box, feature contributor D Star has some more insight from Stacey Clay, a peer support specialist. Now, last time he explained his journey from prison to peer support, and now he has advice for formerly and currently incarcerated folks. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with... Stacey Clay, a.k.a. Scatter. Yes, sir. Um, So for those that don't know you, can you give us a little bit of uh, information about yourself? Oh, yeah. I'm Stacey Clay. You know, I'm a certified peer specialist. I work at Anesis Therapy, uh, crisis management, and other things uh, with individuals, you know, teaching them skills or teaching them you know, certain things. I use our statements to be assertive or whatever. I always try to focus kind of on some of the inmates that had just got into prison uh-huh. and really don't know, right. you know what I mean, how things go. Right. Or maybe they think they know, but with right. somebody with your experience, you know what I mean, you can give them a little bit more insight. Right. Let's say that, you know, I'm a person that I just got into prison and I'm looking to, you know, find my way. What would be your advice? My advice would be to just, well, it depends on who you are. I mean, if you're a religious person, then I would go that, that route. You're Muslim, I would go that route. But uh, just really work on yourself, educate yourself, read as much as you can, do anything that you can to to enhance your chances of being successful when you get out. Because you there, it's like you're in timeout. They got libraries, they got all this book, and then they got a library. Well, if they don't have a book at a library, you can put it in the inner library and get it from the streets or whatever, and you read and just read and educate yourself, especially with financial literacy, because we as African-American and black people, we don't have no idea about financial literacy. And when you come out, your credit score and all that stuff is going to be very important and it's going to sit because you know you can't get housing, you can't get anything. Right. Even right now, the way the system is set up, coming out of prison, I know a couple of people that just thirty years, twenty six years, they out of prison, they got the money from work release and all that. Can't they will, get, they willing to pay six months upfront security deposit. They want won't but rent because of, right because they don't have a rental history. Yeah. And how can I get a rental history if you don't ever give me a chance? Exactly. And so these are the things they need to be focused on while they're in there because when you first go to prison, the first thing you need to be focused on is when you get out. Re-entry. So so right. So everything that you're Anderson doing. We just had Anderson Cooper um, on the pod, and he said reentry starts the day that you get into prison. It doesn't start six months before you get out. It starts that day. Absolutely. You need to be planning. You need to be bettering yourself uh, for when you get out. Absolutely. You know? 
And I uh, read that in the book by uh, this brother called D'Amico Booth. And he was another brother that ended up getting caught up in the situation. He got a book out, two books, you know, getting out, stand out, and uh, why so many black men are in prison, you know. So, um, and I read those books. And that's one of the things that he said when he got out, he got his cleaning services, got out. Yeah, that's where I got that from. So I would I would encourage anybody that's listening, if you ever find that book, and why so many black men in prison, read it. It's, re- it's very, you know, educational. Uh, it's going to give you a lot of information that you need. It's going to tell you how to crack academic came. You know, it's Alexander too, but this is going to really break a lot of stuff down for you. It's going to show you how easy it is to get caught up. What can someone do to help a friend or family member while they're still incarcerated? Because a lot of times we feel powerless. You know what I mean? Like we hear these situations and, you know, we... We just feel like, like what is going on? You know what I mean? Like you just feel hopeless, powerless. You just feel like you can't do anything to help. You know what I mean? Like, so with all of that experience that you have, what can one do to feel like they can help? It's all about connections and it's about staying connected because you got to be connected to something. So, you know, like for me, um, getting a letter some days was like going on a visit. Right, And then I look forward to a visit because the visit was my only way to get out the joint. I couldn't oh, yeah. be free. But when I got on the visit for these two hours, these three hours, man, I wasn't locked up. I was free. And I was with my little nieces, nephews, my sister, my mother, whoever. And we were talking about whatever, you know. And I, and for that moment, I wasn't an inmate. I wasn't a convict. I wasn't, you know, anything. So I just think families got to keep their connections, you know, and they got to support each other and love each other through everything. Because love is love. And at the end of the day, it's all about love. And some people think that means send me canteen, send me money, do this, do that, and always try to. No, that don't mean that because, you know, it means that, you know, uh, these people are there for you to help you in your process to get better. And if you, like my wife, she sent me all kind of information on different things, books or whatever. So I was able to read and get information from the inside on a lot of different. So if sometimes you can't send money, just send them something to read, something positive, something encouraging, get them a postcard, yeah, anything. business plans, put them up, send them books. They sent me books. So I was reading books, you know, they were doing, do all that kind of stuff because now they were investing, uh, uh, in my, in my ability to my, my growth, my process, you know? So, and those were the things that helped me along with the business and all those other things. So you and your wife were together while you were in prison, correct? Yeah, towards the end. Yeah. Okay. When I, when I initially, well, it doesn't matter, right, it, right. but y'all were together while you were in prison. Absolutely. So, so Absolutely. That means I got married you- in prison. Oh, wow. Let's talk about relationships. Okay. Let's talk about it. You're a married man. I'm a married man. Okay. How do you feel about relationships in prison? Well, it depends on who you with. Like, like for example, like I've had a multitude of relationships while I was in prison. I've Let's focus on the younger guys. Okay, right. And so when, you, when you're in prison. Um, First timers. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard if you got a girlfriend. That's what I was going to decipher. Like, I was going to uh, explain like if you come in there with somebody, your feelings and your heart in, it's very hard. That's devastating because even cats in there telling y'all, oh, man, you know, dude, out there being your girl, you know, she with Bob, you know this. So, and you go on in, then you hear slow songs or songs that you guys it's have back memories, yeah, it's making you yeah. sick, you depressed, you sleep all the time, you're selling mad because you don't never go out the room, but you you going, you feel it, and you going through somebody else with you. Then you go look on the mail list, your name on the list, you ain't getting no mail. You go put the phone in, doo, 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 your number, you can't, yeah. you know. So all that factors into everything you know what I'm saying? so how would, how would you tell them to kind of navigate those feelings or what they should do about that i know it's hard you know right. it's very difficult but here's the thing what you have to do you have to come to terms with it's like i just said earlier you have to understand that when you was out and you was in rotation you was the man you was you, you was in control you was able to do all that the such the, the circumstances have changed the dynamics have changed you're out already more you're not the sole primary breadwinner you're in prison now she has been empowered. She's in the role of power now. 
there has been a switch. You think because you in there, you still the same person you is. You're going to be able to run things and you still got this attitude and you feel like somebody owe you or she got to do this, she got to do that. Well, now to her, it feel like a job. Like you don't even appreciate me or whatever. Yeah. This, that, whatever. See, now you, 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 you sabotaging your own relationship. To understand that the dynamics have switched and that now she running stuff and that I'm here and she helping take care of me and I'm grateful for that, that's the best way because now that's going to keep her coming that's to you. That's the key. It's going to get her down and cut you up, lifting her, you supporting her, you sending her stuff, you understanding it's not about canteen. Even when she do send you some money, you budget your money and you make it last for you and you do what you got to do. You ain't out there trying to show out for your friends, cook meals for everybody else, show you a penitentiary pimp, be on the phone, you know, jacking and doing this, nothing, the third. You know, when you come home, you got to follow up on that. You know what I'm saying? You can't just, because it's a lot of cats write a lot of letters and scripts in prison and then, um, you know, when they get out, they, they bust a move. So if you had to give a message to the community, uh, to the inmate community, uh, what what is the message that you want to share? Oh man, to to always believe, to always have hope, and to always become and be greater and and better than what you were before. Well, Stacy, man, really from everybody here out of the box, man, I really want to uh, thank you and I really appreciate you coming to the podcast and telling your story, man. Seriously, it's Serious, all love. Seriously, man, respect. That was D Star sitting down with peer support specialist Stacy Clay. This week on The House Always Wins, carpentry instructors and roofing enthusiasts Stephanie, John Stephanie and Ali Barini discuss how and why roofs fail and some options for re-roofing your home. I call it housework, cause it's light work. What you, what you done here? I'ma throw shapes, filling the base to my feet hurt. Hello, everyone. I'm John. And I'm Allie. And welcome to The House Always Wins, where you can learn cool stuff about your house. We all love cool stuff. Hey, Allie, um, didn't we just have a big old hailstorm in the area? Big one, big one. Big, big, big hail. Yeah, an inch and a quarter hail up by my house. Dang, did your house take any damage? Still unknown. I've got somebody coming to look at it uh, later today. But, you know, that's the thing is that uh, if there is any damage from that hail, I want to get that fixed before it starts leaking. Right. And I think a lot of people have asked me in the last couple of days, like, well, you know, what's the big deal? You get a couple dents in your roof, like who cares? But the problem is really having to do with that gravel being knocked off your roof. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. you've exposed your roof to the, the shingles actually eventually degrading because of that. That hailstorm did damage to your roof and several rows. In fact, I'm, now I'm like, I need to go walk on my roof and take a look around. So you're, so you're thinking you got an issue, right? I, I'm having somebody look at it. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. You definitely want to replace your roof before it leaks. Cause it, that'll cause just thousands of dollars of damage once there's water in your house. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I know I have needed to replace my roof for a while, and it's just hard to kind of suck it up and spend the money because it's not a cheap thing. No. Um, so I'm always kind of like, can I get one more year out one of that? One more year. One more year. One more year. Um, <laughs> my roof is asphalt, and that's what you see on most homes in this area. Mm-hmm. And John, could you explain what exactly an asphalt shingle roof is? Right. So everybody's got this on their house. They don't even know what it is. And asphalt shingles, what they are, is they're roughly a one foot by three foot fiberglass mat that is completely impregnated with asphalt tar. Lovely material. Indeed. Each shingle has then like a gravel coating that's kind of embedded into the asphalt. It gives the shingle its color and also helps protect the shingle from the sun's destructive UV rays, right? 
So the shingles are then installed like from the bottom edge of the roof all the way up and they overlap. So each successive row partially overlaps the previous row, et cetera, et cetera. And once they're all installed, you basically have two to almost three individual layers of roofing uh, in place uh, along with the tar paper underneath it. Yeah, and on a sloped roof, so this is where you would use asphalt shingles. Right. The the way this works is it just sheds water. It's not waterproof. It exactly. sheds water. Water runs downhill um, because you've got all these multiple layers and of of shingles. The water is supposed to just keep on keeping on going down down to the bottom of the roof. Right. Gravity. Uh huh. So where things can start to fail uh, on an asphalt shingle roof is is it really has um, oftentimes to do with the gravel. Right. That coating that's on there, either wearing off over time or actually getting knocked off by the hail, for right. example. And what that does when that gravel comes off of there, it exposes that asphalt mat. Um, the problem is asphalt's very sensitive to the UV light, the sun's, the sun's light, mm-hmm. and it will cause it to get brittle and then eventually crack. And that's where your leaks are going to be. It's the cracking of the asphalt because the gravel is now now missing. Um, and certainly, of course, if you're missing shingles, well, that's a problem. I think that's that's fairly obvious why why that might leak. Uh, oh, indeed, yeah. And if you're and if you're seeing all your shingles and you look out and they're all curling, you're well past. Yeah, well past the time. <laughs> exactly. Time. <laughs> exactly. The indication that they need to be replaced is they have lost significant gravel. Okay. Right. So let's say you need a new roof. Yeah, let's talk about some options, their pros and their cons. You know, the first option is to re-roof with, with asphalt shingles. Um, and this is likely the least expensive options. why you see it on so many homes. Right. Um, first of all, in every case, the old shingles need to be taken off the roof. Absolutely. Every case. Absolutely. And, and certainly don't listen to your uncle. Uh, uncle Fred. Your Uncle Fred about like, we're just going to go over the top of it. Oh, no, it'll be fine. Significantly reduces the length of time those those shingles will last. Yeah, well, your Uncle Fred also usually says, here, hold my beer and I'll explain. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, Old asphalt shingles, they maybe would have lasted 15 years. Uh, newer asphalt shingles are much thicker than the old ones. They are often warranted for 30 or 40 years. Some of them are what are called lifetime. I'm not clear yeah. whose lifetime that yeah, is. Whose but, lifetime is that? But, but, <laughs> so, but at least 40 years. The, of course, there's a variety of colors available that's more than there used to be. And there's different patterns. So they can have different looks. But, John, right. I know you you are not a fan of the asphalt shingles. What? No, that's... Okay, that's totally true. Uh, you're right. I am absolutely not a fan of asphalt shingles. Here's why. The main reasons I don't like asphalt, A, it is a petrochemical. And frankly, we need to be moving away from those. B, they just don't last. I mean, 30 years for a roof are like, hey, that's great. No, it's not. I was in Europe uh, recently, ran around in some mountains up there. But when you look at the homes they build there, they build with a much longer view. Uh, and you will never see a single asphalt roof anywhere there. In fact, the only place you might see asphalt is on like a doghouse. Uh, that's where I did see. I literally, I saw some asphalt shingles on a doghouse. That was the only place. There they use metal roofs and clay tile roofs and things like that. So asphalt just doesn't last. And it's really, then it's all torn off and it's all thrown in the landfill. I just look at this and go, we could do better. We could definitely do better. Like how? Well, you know, there is an alternative to asphalt shingles. Metal roofing. Yay! Yeah, so metal roofing uh, comes in a variety of styles. There's one style, 
It looks pretty much like an asphalt shingle. I know. Isn't that funny? It is kind of funny. I mean, one thing about metal is that basically it can be formed and shaped to look like other things pretty easily. So there's styles that look like clay tiles. Yeah. There's styles that look like slate. So there's there's definitely sort of mimicking metal uh, out there available. And then there's also... Um, Standing seam and screw down panels. Yeah, they've come a long way with it, and it's it's actually e- much more easier to install than it used to be. It comes in a variety of colors. It's not hard to install. The prices have been really coming down, and metal roofs last. In fact, the house I grew up in had a metal roof that was installed in 1890, and it's still on the house and is still going. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about replacing my asphalt roof with standing seam metal. The other great aspect of steel as it lasts is it's also... It's made from recycled materials, so there's probably a fair amount of metal in that that is recycled. And then when it's done, it can get taken off and be recycled again. So not going to landfill. Yay! Yeah, no, it's metal is one of the most recyclable materials in uh, that we have in the world. Yeah, and so as I as I think about what I'm going to do about my roof, which might or might not have hail damage on it... Um, <laughs> I am thinking about moving to a standing seam metal roof. I mean, I might, you know, John knows my house looks a bit like a barn. It's a Dutch colonial. It's a Dutch colonial. Famous. Yep. And metal roofs, standing seam metal roofs are kind of what was used on barns. Right. But at the same time, it also looks kind of modern. It's like it's straddling these different worlds oh of my God. barn and modern. I, a modern I, barn. I love the look. So it sounds like you're definitely going to lean towards metal, and I highly approve that. I, I think it'll look great, and it'll be a great option. Well, there's definitely some other options out there. There's clay and, and uh, slate and uh, wood shingles, but those really make up sort of a niche market. I mean, there's very few providers who can install them, and, and so I think it's, just, it's not worth getting too deep into those weeds. Right. With that in mind, I think let's call it a, a wrap here. Let's call it a wrap. Let's, that's all we have time for today. So if you have any questions about home improvement, construction, or carpentry that you'd like us to answer, please drop us an email at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. It is... 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. In this world of fast fashion and holiday home decor, feature contributor Jennifer Fields is encouraging folks to give new purchases a second thought and old purchases a second chance. In this week's episode of Radio Chipstone, Jennifer spoke to Emma DeVrizi and Laura Sims Peck, Engagement Manager and Operations Manager, respectively, at UW Madison's Center of Design and Material Culture. Their exhibit, Social Threads Making, Mending, and Maintaining Community, is currently on display through December 3rd in the Helen Louise Allen Textile Gallery. The mending here is both physical mending. We have several pieces on display that show patchwork and fixing of a textile, but we also have mending of kind of historical tragedies and personal trauma and how making can help you mend yourself. I left my sewing practice because I just got too cool and too busy when I was in my 20s. And what I'm excited about seeing now as I return to it is that mending isn't something that's hidden. We're actually starting to see people talk about it. We're starting to see mending becoming part of the garment to be seen. Visible mending is definitely a popular practice now. So you really highlight 
the fact that something has been restored or maybe not restored perfect, but it's part of the thing that brings it kind of a uniqueness to itself. So then when we're talking about visible mending and we're talking about historical garments, is there a shift now from hiding that mending or are, does that become part of the conversation about the historical garment or textile? I see more of a trend away from trying to pretend that something is, has been made whole again and making it very, very obvious that this has been, this was broken and then we are placing it in this context, this new context. I think it adds more to the conversation than in the past when they were trying to really kind of give it this covering that was inherently not true to the object. So do we have a sample or example of that? I don't know. I feel like these kinds of crazy quilts, just in their process. Okay, I'm sorry. Can I have this? This one is a very popular piece in the collection. It's beautiful. It's so, the depth to it, it looks like it's a bunch of different wools. Mm -hmm. Like maybe there's some felting going on here. It's just the embroidery, the vibrancy of it. And who is Lena? Do we know who Lena is? Well, I mean, I think that's crazy that her name's on this twice. Do you see it here as well? And then there's Annie. Yes. So Lena and Annie. And it makes you wonder, like, were they the ones who embroidered their own names? Were they loved ones that wanted to be another wanted to remember? I mean, it just has so many kind of questions that it provokes. And is this some kind of competition? Like, Annie's on here once, but Lena's on here twice. Was Lena like, oh, Annie? I, I don't, we don't, I guess we don't know the whole story. I, I see that and wonder if there was actually a generational, if there was two Lenas. If maybe the maker was Lena and maybe Lena was a daughter or a niece or something like that. That's what, it's not interpretive, but that, that is completely not based on anything. <laughs> I personally think, I don't know, I would be the kind of, especially if I made this as a kid, I would be the kind of kid to put my name on something twice. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Especially if my sister put hers on there, I'm coming back. Yes, exactly. So talk to me about this quilt because... It's beautiful, and you can, I can see here that some of the threads have been have disengaged. I don't want to say cut, but they've just given way, and there's those infamous worn squares that always seem to pop up on quilts. Talk to me about the significance of this quilt and why, not that it's so popular, but why does it take this, this place of prominence in the gallery? Because it's right by the informational text when you walk in. It is the kind of hero kind of object for this collection. It is the graphic identity for this exhibition. I can't speak to why the students were drawn to it, but I can't speak to why I'm drawn to it. And I think it's just the collective nature of all the pieces coming together, the very visible way that it's pieced so that the seams are very obvious and it fills the entire kind of vision with this kind of mending patchwork that I think exemplifies the show. Some of the seams are extraordinary. This one here, it's like a flower, like a, 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 almost a vine, a flower vine going up, or a vine going up through it. Some of them are much more detailed, like the one you pointed out, where it's pink and green and a, another lighter colored shade that are crawling up the sides. But then others are just kind of simple, kind of an X to just hold things in place. So then as we think about this exhibit and we think about mending and mending practices, for Laura or for Emma, has it changed the way you deal with your own personal textiles and garments? How has this exhibit changed the way you think about 
extending the life of garments. I can speak uh, personally in my life, and I think I might have gotten this from you, Jennifer. Are you not buying clothes right now? Is yeah, I'm not buying yeah. for a year. So yeah. I've started doing that too. I, I started doing that in July. I'm trying not to buy any clothes for a year, and I wonder if I, I, that seed must have been planted by you early on. But this show did help me really think about like the fast fashion aspects of clothing, how for the longest time clothing was something that if it had a rip, you fixed it. You didn't just throw it away. Um, because there's this abundance of other things you can get, and um, things aren't always, you know, ma made to last long periods of time. Um, there's also just that consumer mentality that we have in our society that you need to be buying and you need to be um, to get more and more things. And so thinking about mending, I'm not a sewer myself, but yeah, I'm trying not to continue that cycle and keep buying more clothes. I'm trying to be really present with the items that I do have. And if it is something that I, I like it, but not quite, I wish it was like this, why don't I learn those skills to make it so that it is something that I like, or it is something that's repairable or um, um, more comfortable or something that, um, that I actually do want to wear. I think that thinking through the actual mending, the physical mending part of this, the um, emotional mending that goes to the show is a whole other thing that could be un unpacked and is represented in many different ways in the other objects. But that, that mending practice as a non-sewer has really inspired me to maybe think about trying. <laughs> you know what I figured out? That I kept buying the same sort of style of clothes just in different patterns. So it's the same basic silhouette and style of it, mm -hmm. but maybe the, the graphics on it has changed. Yeah. So I was like, what? Like, it's the same dress, yeah. but now it's purple. What are you doing? Yeah, just wash it. Just wash it and fix it. <laughs> so Emma, have you rethought about how you consume garments and textiles and how you, you live in your clothes not having worked on this project? Yes, so kind of joining this project late um, since I started here in July, it made me appreciate my own practice of I am really drawn to vintage clothing. When I do buy a garment, I'm really interested in the life it's already lived and being able to become part of that object's continuance. Um, so it certainly adds another layer to my appreciation for uh, textiles and how they're made and how with the mending workshop being able to actually partake in fixing my ripped jeans and such so that I can keep wearing something I love. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at six. Russ Mackey was your headline writer. Your reporter tonight was Sarah Gabler. Special thanks to feature contributors D Star, John Stephanie and Ali Barini and Jennifer Fields. Nicole Alley engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, you don't have to miss a single good story or interview on the local news. You can subscribe to it as a podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. So sign up. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night. <laughs>